I am uh, definitely excited about being at Chelsea right now. What a great time to be a part of this family, seeing all the different things God's doing. I was uh, lucky enough to be at VBS this week, and uh, unfortunately, at the end of the week, the kids put a cake in my face, so I'm not going back again next year. <laughs> Just kidding. It was really great. It was fun, and I'm so excited to see God continue to move in the lives of our families. Well, today we are jumping back into a series that we have been in now for a couple of weeks called Seven, looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, And this week, when I was thinking about some of the ideas in this passage that we'll read in a moment, uh, I ended up finding myself in an article entitled, 20 Things That Are Larger Than You Realize. Uh, And I wanted to share a few of these with you because I was blown away by some of the differences to my estimations uh, and to what reality is. For example, here is one picture I saw of a camel. I had no idea that camels were this large. I thought that I had a good understanding. I've been to zoos, but apparently... Uh, Camels are a pretty colossal animal. Uh, He's another animal that blew me away as well, a humpback whale. There's an image here of a humpback whale with a scuba diver. Animals that we don't think about, we don't necessarily get to see in this light, incredibly huge. Uh, Here, this next picture is of a fan blade from a wind turbine. Uh, Now, we see these uh, wind turbines all the time you drive around, but I had no idea that once you put that fan blade on the ground, that this is how large one of those would be compared to a person. It blew me away. Uh, This next one is interesting. This is a representation of how many planet Earths could fit inside of the sun. So all of those small blue balls are a a planet Earth, and that large uh, see-through one is meant to be the sun. There are thousands of Earths that could fit inside there. And there's one more. We don't have an image of this, but it, uh, it really blew me away as well. And this is an effort to try and help us understand how much larger one billion is than one million. If I had a million seconds, that would be equal to about 11 days. If I had a billion seconds, that would be equal to about 31 and a half years. So there are many things in this world that we have a poor estimation of just how large they are. And nothing is more frequently underestimated than God himself. For some reason, our hearts and our lives tend to reduce the image of who God is. And we don't see him in the way that he wants us to see him. And really, that's what this passage that we're going to look at this week is really all about. It's about helping us get a right perspective of the God who loves us, of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Often, we will try and create God in our own image. We like to try and make God look a little bit more like us, our preferences and our worldview and uh, the different things that we've gone through. But it's really important that we have an accurate picture of God, because this is what A.W. Tozer says. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. I think that Toz is right. However we conceive of God in our heart and mind, that is the image that we're going to move ourselves towards. We're going to start acting like that. If we see God as judgmental and as harsh and as critical, then we're going to move towards that image. And we're going to struggle with ideas of God being merciful and gentle and kind and forgiving. Or alternatively, if we drift towards a God who affirms us in all the different parts of our life and wants us to be happy, we're going to struggle with a God who's going to challenge us and is going to call us to live differently. So we want to have an accurate picture of God. Jesus knows our hearts and minds will drift from him unless we have an accurate picture. And so Jesus appears to his good friend John in this letter to make himself known in a way that will get rid of those reduced images. Now, this series is entitled Seven, because primarily Revelation is a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, but it's also a letter written to us, 
as the church universal, to help us see Jesus rightly. It's not some mysterious spiritual code that we need to crack about the future so much as it is a lens by which we can see Jesus and his purposes in and through his church. In the times that we live in, I think that there's probably few books of the Bible that we can glean as much from as Revelation. So I'm excited to go through this today, and we're going to take a look at three ways in which we see Jesus in Revelation 1. First, the Jesus who speaks to us. Second, the Jesus who astounds us. And lastly, the Jesus who restores us. So let's take a look straight away at the Jesus who speaks to us. Now, I am excited to be in church on the 4th of July. This is the first time, I think, to my memory that I have been in church to worship on the 4th of July. And for an ex-Englishman, it's always an interesting experience to be a part of the 4th of July celebrations. Uh, There's so many American symbols and ideas that are just very different to all the ones that I grew up with. Uh, And maybe one of the American symbols that I admire the most is the American bald eagle. Now, uh, the national animals that I grew up with in England are just not as impressive as the bald eagle. For example, you may not know that the, the genuine national animal of Scotland is the unicorn. It's neither real nor intimidating. Uh, and so I'm glad I am now in a country that has a fearsome bed of prey, a majestic bed of prey like the bald eagle. And we are very lucky that we live in an area where there are some American bald eagles that live out in the wild near us. You may not know this, but if you go out to Mooseheart in Batavia, there is a nest there of two adult American bald eagles and their eaglets. And you can drive right up and look up in the tree and see their nest, see them catching fish, see them feeding their eaglets. And it's an amazing scene to see these birds in the, in the wild, in their natural habitat, these majestic, incredible beds. Now, one of the things that's been most unfortunate for me is I love images of this bed, but I've never actually put myself in a position to go and see them, for real. To actually stand by the side of the road and look at those beds with my own two eyes. Sometimes I, I look at images that people take of them. And the really unfortunate thing about that is that I have an opportunity to go encounter them for myself. And the reason that that relates to what we're talking about today is we in this room, as followers of Jesus, have the opportunity to, for ourselves, go and encounter the God who speaks to us, the Jesus who speaks to us. The question is, are we going to put ourselves in a place to hear from him? Here's what Revelation 1, 9 through 11 tells us. John is recording this letter, and he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatria, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Despite the challenges of his circumstances, John the Apostle wanted to put himself in a position to hear from the one who loved him. He wanted to encounter the Jesus who speaks. Now, to give us kind of a picture of where John was at and why this is such a stunning thing, John, as he mentions in this text, has been exiled to an island called Patmos. It's a very small island, about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, and it The closest thing that I can use to try and help us understand this is to say it was sort of an Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. The Roman authorities would send prisoners here that they didn't want to deal with, that they felt were too elderly to execute, and so to be merciful, they would be exiled instead, or people who were a general problem to the empire would be sent here. 
It was a barren, rocky island. And this is where John finds himself. It's probably about 90 AD, which means that John is very likely the only apostle left alive. Peter and, John, uh, Peter and Paul were both martyred, we believe, in the late 60s AD. And so here's John at the end of his life, exiled on an island, away from his church brothers and sisters, in the middle of a persecution worldwide of the church. And if that was me, I would ask myself, where is God in this? Where is the Jesus who loved us and promised us that the gates of hell would never prevail against us? How did I end up here? But John, thankfully, is not like me. What John did is he, he tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is kind of a unique way of saying that John was faithful to make sure that he was spending time studying the Word, faithfully praying, and remembering who Jesus was. The Lord's Day, is, uh, as we know, has come to be the Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, in which the church would gather together and celebrate. And even here on an island by himself, John is making sure that those same rhythms of celebration and prayer and study are happening. No matter where he is, no matter what's going on, John dedicates himself to the God who speaks. John saw what he saw and he heard what he heard here that we read because he was faithful to spend time focusing on Jesus. My dear friends, God is waiting to speak to us and what we must confront in ourselves is that God is willing to speak. Are we willing to listen? God is faithful to speak. Are we willing to listen to his voice? How can we start listening to God's voice? How can we put into our lives the same kind of rhythms that John had to make sure that he wasn't drifting? Well, first is John makes sure to commemorate the Lord's Day. You know, we've just come out of a year-long pandemic that made it very difficult for us to gather together. We know that. But one of the things that we as a church body wanted to make sure that we did right at the start was to create avenues for people to gather in some way to worship together because we believe that the Lord's Day and the gathering of God's people is incredibly vital to our lives as believers. And so Chapel Street Church started to offer online services. And I'm so glad that we continue to do that because there are believers around the world that are now able to join in worship, even if their circumstances don't allow them to be here with us. We want to create avenues to do it because it's so important. And the second thing that we all need to do is we need to be faithful in study and in prayer. John uses this very strange phrase, I was in the Spirit. I can't tell you exactly what that looked like. But we know that it meant faithful study. We know that it meant spending time in God's Word. We know that John wanted to hear from God from his Word because he tells us even in this letter in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says that blessed are those who read this letter, who hear this letter, who keep its words. The early church understood that in order to hear from God and to follow God and to grow in their relationship with God, they needed to be spending time in His Word, being faithful in prayer and study. You know, this week as we were preparing this, Pastor Jeff asked us, some of us that were preaching this passage, would you rather have the revelation, the vision itself that John has, to see those things that he saw, or the written account? And I, of course, put my hand up first and said, I would like to have the vision, because sometimes I talk before I think. But here's what Pastor Jeff pointed out, and I think it's very important for us to understand. A lot of us who read this book would probably say, we'd rather have the vision. I want to see these things for myself. But how many of us have had ecstatic moments in our life that have drifted from our memory? And we can't go back to them. We can't enjoy them over again, because once it's happened, it's happened. You know what Jesus did with John that was so gracious? Is he said, John, write down what I'm about to tell you. 
because I don't want anyone to miss it. What I'm about to give you is not just for you, John. These words are not just for you. They are for my church. Send them to the seven churches in Asia. Jesus has poured himself out in his word for us to read again and again. One of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, who was at the Mount of Transfiguration itself, once said in a letter that we've just read as a church, that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What Peter was saying is, despite my experiences on the mountain, seeing Jesus clothed in glory, I know that I have it more fully confirmed in his word. Those experiences that I had, I can go back to and I can read again and again. Church, we get to read John's vision again and again and be reminded of the Jesus who appears to him, the Jesus who speaks. Every time we turn a page of God's word, we are hearing the voice of God to us. And so church, we want to put ourselves in a position where we can hear the God who speaks. But it's not just the Jesus who speaks that we see in Revelation, it's the Jesus who astounds us. The Jesus who astounds us. When I first met my wife, Janir, I knew that she was uh, a lot more athletic than me uh, and cooler than me, but I did not know that Janir was a dancer. Uh, and I think it was probably after a year of dating and some engagement before I saw something that changed the way that I looked at my wife forever. Her dad had a video recording of a dance recital that she performed when she was in high school. And she had all by herself choreographed this entire dance to uh, the Bare Necessities from the Jungle Book. And Janae used to be a, a teacher at these dance recitals, and she would choreograph these dances, and she would teach them to the younger kids, and then she would dance the kind of lead part. And I remember watching this video for the first time and seeing my wife dance and thinking, I'm never dancing with you at our wedding because you're way too good. And it completely changed the way that I saw my wife, the grace with which she danced and the skill with which she danced and the talent that she had in, in creating all these different moves. And it changed completely the way that I saw her. And even now, I look back on that video and think about the way that I saw Janae differently as a result of that. And I think this is a significant moment like that for John, where John sees Jesus in a way he had never seen him before. And it changes him. It completely changes him. See, when John turns to see, this is what we're told, Revelation 1, 12 through 16, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the Jesus who appears to John and astounds him. It's one of the most incredible moments in all of Scripture, where the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and we see the risen and victorious king. This is what Tom Wright says about this moment in Scripture. He says, we're being asked to imagine what it would look like if the curtain between heaven and earth was suddenly pulled up, revealing the Jesus who had been there all along, but whom we had managed either to ignore or to cut down to our own size. It's easy for us to imagine a Jesus that looks like us. It's harder for us to imagine a Jesus as he is. So what does John see? I want to talk a little bit about what he sees specifically. The first thing that he tells us is that there are seven golden lampstands and that there's one in the midst of them 
like the Son of Man. Now, verse 20 of chapter 1 is going to reveal to us that those seven lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is why we often have to pay attention in Revelation, because sometimes the confusing images we see, Jesus himself is going to explain what they mean. And so in this case, we have the seven churches, and in the midst of them, one like a son of man, right there in the middle of them. Now, son of man was a title that Jesus loved to use for himself, and it was a title that Jesus himself got from the book of Daniel. It was this messianic title. You see, the Jewish people knew that one day the Son of Man would come, this divine figure who would rescue God's people, redeem God's people, a victorious king. And Jesus would call himself this. It's one of the reasons that the Jewish authorities became so incensed and angry with Jesus is because he equated himself with this divine figure. But one of my favorite places where that phrase and that title occurs in Scripture is in the book of Daniel, in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men that have been accused by the king uh, of failing to worship him. And so he says, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace and you'll be consumed. And the fiery furnace, we're told, is so hot and so bright that even the guards that approached it were consumed. And in go Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then something strange happens. The king looks and in the midst of the fire, there with the men, is one like a son of man. And he and now in the the time of the church, they are going through a fire of their own, aren't they? A persecution, loss of their leaders, frightening time. But there, among the lampstands, in the midst of them, stands one like the Son of Man, in the fire with them. Can you imagine how comforting this would have been to John, exiled alone on this island, to discover that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, was there with him, standing amongst the churches. so important for us today to understand that Jesus is alive. He is amongst us. We are a lampstand, a light on a, on a city, or, sorry, a city on a hill, and a light that shines to show who Jesus is. And Jesus is with us, in the midst of it all with us. Jesus was amongst them. But what else does John see? That's not the end of this incredible vision. When John looks at this Son of Man, he sees these frightening, overwhelming images that really don't fit with how we traditionally see Jesus. We're told that he was wearing a white robe. This is to show that Jesus was a high priest, that he's the one that intercedes for us and prays for us. He's holy. He has white hair, which was a symbol of maturity and wisdom. Another callback to the Old Testament in Ezekiel, where the Ancient of Days had white hair. We're told that he has eyes like flames of fire. What this means is that Jesus' gaze was penetrating. That as John beheld the risen Jesus, Jesus could see right through him. There was nothing about John that was invisible to Jesus. Everything he could see. That's a frightening thing. To look into the eyes of someone who sees you truly as you are. Looking into those eyes that were like fire. We're told that his feet were like burnished bronze, another symbol of Jesus' sinlessness and holiness, that the very foundation that he stands on is perfect. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever stood at the base of a waterfall, even a very small waterfall? The, the, the roar of the waters hitting the ground is so loud that it deafens everything else. I've never been, but I'm told that if you stand at the base of Victoria Walls in Africa, that it is one of the most overwhelming sensory experiences that you can 
and countdown. The, the, the sound is so loud that it vibrates your very body. That's what it was like to be in the presence of the voice of Jesus, the risen king. The voice literally shook John where he was. It deafened everything else, and all that John could hear was Jesus. Told that a sword comes from his mouth, a two-edged sword. The book of Hebrews uses this image. It says the word of God is like a two-edged sword that divides soul and spirit. Jesus' words cut us. They cut right through us. For those that love him and trust him, it's like a scalpel that does surgery on us and reveals those things in us that need to be remedied. But for those that are out of Jesus, his words are frightening. A sharp sword that cuts them down, that judges them. And lastly, we're told that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. None of these are meant to be an exact depiction of what it looked like. Obviously, some of them are very strange. But what it is, is John's efforts to try and help us see this glorified risen king that he beheld. A one that could see right through him. One that made him tremble where he stood. One that overwhelmed every part of who he was. Is that the Jesus that you see? Is that the Jesus that you encounter when you come to his word? If we're honest, this is not a Jesus that we're very comfortable with. We like the child in the manger. We like the carpenter on the road beside us. We like the friend who eats at the last supper with us. But Jesus doesn't want us to have a reduced picture of who he is. He is absolutely all of those things. He is the God who has become to be incarnate with us, to walk beside us, to be intimate with us. But he is also the king who is on a throne, high above every nation, every government, every power and authority. Scripture tells us that every nation is a footstool to Jesus. It's so important that we see Jesus as he is because in every generation, the church needs to see the glory of our risen king. You know, it's the primary job of preachers like me and Brian and Jeff and Sterling to hold up this image of Jesus as he presents himself in Scripture and say, behold the one who loves you, the one who transforms you. In 2 Corinthians, we're told by Paul that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we see Jesus as he is, it changes us. shapes us to become the same kind of people. So it's very important that we behold the right image. Because if I concoct a Jesus that is reduced in some way, I'm going to be transformed into something less than what God desires for me. If I see a Jesus that is not the Jesus of revelation, I'm going to become a disciple of the wrong things. That's why we need the Jesus who restores us. The Jesus who restores us. When John beholds this Jesus, this is what he says. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, John's response to beholding this risen Jesus is to crumble, is to fall down as though dead. And the only one who can pick John off the ground in that moment is Jesus. Now, why does John react like this? Surely John, who rested on the Savior's breast at the Last Supper, he leant against Jesus, he walked with him, he knew him, he was loved by him. Why should John fear this Jesus? Why would it affect him so terribly? It's because beholding Jesus rightly will always trouble you because it will help to see yourself rightly. If you behold Jesus rightly, then you will behold yourself rightly, and that is a frightening place to be. When you behold the glory and the holiness of God, you'll see your unholiness, your brokenness, your failings. This is how Frederick Buchner says it in his book, Telling the Truth. He says, beneath our clothes and our reputations and our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, We are all vulnerable to the storm without and to the storm within. And if we are ever to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our own tragic nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. Thus it seems to me that this is also where anyone who preaches the gospel has to start too. After the silence that is truth comes the news that it is bad before it is good. The gospel is sometimes bad news before it is good because it reveals to us our need of a savior. This is what always happened throughout scripture. Anytime anyone encountered the living presence of the glorified God, it caused them to crumble. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah stands before the throne of God. He sees God in his vision. He says, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees himself rightly because he sees God rightly. And he says, this is bad. But then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God lifts Isaiah to his feet. He cleanses him from his sin and his guilt. And what happens in Revelation when John crumbles to the ground? God himself The living king, the reigning victorious Jesus lays his right hand on John's shoulder. The right hand which symbolizes all of his power and authority and goodness. And he lifts him up, he restores John. See, Jesus came to reveal himself, to reveal God to us, but also to conquer our fears and to take away anything that would prevent us from standing in his presence. So the question for us this morning is, what are you afraid of? What causes you to crumble before the presence of God? Do you fear that you're not enough? Do you fear that you've done too much? What are you afraid that he can't do for you? This is the Jesus who holds the keys of death and hell itself. He's conquered everything that there is to be conquered. And he's laying his right hand on you and saying, don't be afraid. There's only one that we should fear, and that's Jesus, and he tells us to fear not. There's so much that we carry in this life, so many fears that we hold on to, so many things that prevent us from walking towards our Savior. 
But our greatest problem is not occupational, it's not relational, it's not financial, it's not physical or medical. It's that we need to see Jesus as he is, and we need to be lifted to our feet by his hand. There is nothing in this life more important than that dilemma and that that gift that's offered to us. Jesus is alive and at work in all of our own islands, our own Patmoses, those places where we feel like we've been exiled and separated from the family of God. And Jesus comes to us and says, will you let me put my right hand on you? Will you let me restore you? Will, let, will you let me invite you into a greater, clearer picture of the God who loves you? You know, I want to close just by offering a short story from a friend of mine who passed away recently, a guy called Jeff Elwin. Jeff was the man who baptized me when I was about 16 or 17, a friend from England. And last year, during the pandemic, he got a diagnosis that he'd got a brain tumor. And so shortly after I heard about that diagnosis, even though I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, I sent him a message and said, Jeff, I heard what's happened. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. I'm asking God that he would heal us. And this is Jeff's reply to me. He said, great to hear from you. I hope you and your lovely family are all keeping well. I appreciate your prayers. I'm feeling good. And God's been all over this. We've seen so many miracles and answers to prayers. God is good. God's got this. Now, you don't know Jeff, and so you might read that and think, well, he's just typing what anyone should. But I know Jeff, and I could hear his voice saying those words. His first concern was always other people, loving other people. And then even when confronted with suffering and pain and something frightening, Jeff said, God's got it. It's okay. I'm not afraid. That doesn't mean that Jeff didn't want to live and that he didn't want to face this. It just meant that he knew who held the keys. At his funeral last week that I watched online, I had the privilege of hearing some of the darker moments of this last year for Jeff. And one in particular where he'd gone to see a doctor and the diagnosis wasn't good. And he got home and he chose to worship to a song called Even If by Mercy Me. This is some of the lyrics. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. My heart was heavy when I heard that Jeff had passed because he was an incredible man. But Jeff's alive today because of the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. The one who was on his throne. Jeff let Jesus lay his right hand on his shoulder and teach him not to be afraid. He taught Jeff about the Son of Man who stands with him in the fire. Church, you may not be in those same circumstances. You may not be facing anything quite as dire, but I know that we all of us in this room today carry something on our shoulders that we think Jesus can't carry. But I want you to see the one who lays his right hand on you and tells you not to be afraid. I want you to see the Jesus who holds the keys of death and Hades. What should we fear? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning and this chance to behold the risen Jesus who sits on the throne, the Jesus who lays his right hand upon our shoulders. Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us not to be afraid 
and to approach this Jesus, even as he causes us to tremble and see ourselves rightly, because he also lifts us to our feet. He cleanses us from our guilt. He makes known to us the path of life. Help us to see this Jesus today, we pray. Amen.